expert. You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. And as you probably suppose from last week, uh, Dr. Mark Kissler is out and about frolicking at hospitals, uh, doing things. Doing <laughs> yeah, that's COVID. what I love to do in my off time. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, frolicking. <laughs> yep. I think he's building hopscotch courses and uh, Foursquare and all those things to help people. How you doing there, buddy? Hey, I'm doing all right. Yeah, things are things are going okay. The weather's yep. warming up and uh, it's a beautiful day in Boston. Yeah, if you can't hear me right now, I might filter it out, but I heard some birds chirping so uh, <laughs> on Stephen's end. So uh, he has now built a new hobby of collecting birds and bird cages in his house to make him feel outside on the yep. inside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah, well, before we get started, a few things uh, I want to chat about. Well, first, obviously, uh, please keep sending the reviews. Thank you so incredibly much for all the people who sent really just meaningful reviews. Really love them. Clip them. Whenever I feel down, I read them. And I feel better about myself. So thank you for those. Uh, keep them coming. iTunes is the best place where I say Apple Podcasts. iTunes no longer exists. That's me old school. Please leave a review if you can. Uh, if you can help support this podcast, we'd greatly appreciate that to help get us the equipment and to pay off the stuff that we have to keep it going. So that's patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month can help tremendously. If you just want to give a one-time small donation, PayPal. Venmo, all in the show notes. Then if you didn't hear last week, started a new podcast myself because I just can't get enough of it. And that is Living the Real. So check it out. It's all on, it's on Apple Podcasts and all major directories right now. And there'll be more information coming soon. So let's get into some fun stuff. Now, last week, you and I and Mark mentioned we want to do a shout out to a few people who have been listeners and gave us responses and gave us feedback. And uh, one of those was Tina in Cyprus. And she was so lovely to actually send us an awesome email about an update. So thank you, Tina, for that awesome update of what's going on in Cyprus. It sounds like Cyprus is doing really well for itself. I know their next big thing that they're concerned about is as they reopen travel, because as you would imagine, Cyprus is probably kind of a hot spot for destination weddings, in which Tina is a wedding planner. It's the pandemic has clearly affected her business tremendously. So I want to get in directly into the question that Tina had, which is great. So Stephen, she wants to know whether given she's preparing now the fall, September, October, where typically there could be another round of weddings and travels and those kind of things. She wants to know whether you think it's possible there's going to be, or maybe probable, that there's going to be another spike uh, of this uh, coronavirus that might impact her ability to have her wedding venues there in Cyprus. So what are you seeing right now and what do you expect maybe in the fall? Yeah, so there's, you know, you're right, there's been a lot of talk lately about about sort of two things. One, World Health Organization and some other public health groups have been talking about a second peak. And then there's also this talk about a second wave. Now, prior to this pandemic, we didn't really distinguish between those two things very much. But I think what, what they're trying to do here is basically say, you know, earlier this spring, in many places, we had a peak of infections, and we were able to bring that down largely through physical distancing and and maintaining, you know, wearing masks, whatever the sort of non-pharmaceutical interventions that we've been using to reduce transmission. And in a lot of places that's been successful in causing a peak in infections. Now, in the immediate term, the, the fear is that as we're relaxing physical distancing now, as we're basically sort of going out and about into the world, sort of reopening in in heavy air quotes, that that will, <laughs> that will you know, lead to a second peak of infections. Now, that 
that may well happen, and that will probably happen in some places and not in others for a whole variety of, of interesting reasons. But it sounds like what what a lot of people are really interested in now is this this question of the second wave of another large surge of infections happening in the fall. So I think that's where I'd like to focus my attention because I think sure. that that's something that that could probably have a much larger impact sort of on on the our society as a whole. Sure. So we know that that sort of thing happens with pandemics of respiratory illnesses. In fact, it's happened with everyone that I'm aware of so far this century, where so the big ones that we refer to always are the 1918 and the 2009 flu pandemics, where we had springtime transmission, and then it sort of trailed off in the summer, and then we had a large spike, the largest spike happened in the fall. And the reason for that is that over the summer, sort of low level transmission was able to happen in a lot of different places. The disease was basically just sort of allowed to percolate into all these different areas. And then once it really seems like once the climate conditions became right, coupled with the fact that in those two epidemics, kids were going back to school and that sort of thing. So contact rates were increasing as well. You see this large spike of infections that really hits a lot of different places at once. So for a while, there's been a big question among epidemiologists as to whether that's going to happen here as well. Um, one reason why we think it, it could not is because um, the coronavirus seems to be more infectious than the flu. And so there's a chance that more people have been exposed than would have been exposed in those previous flu pandemics, which would drop the number of people who are susceptible and, and reduce you know, the risk of that second wave. But a lot of the studies that have been coming out now suggest that even the hardest hit places, um, really only on the order of 10% of the population have been exposed. That's a very rough sort of estimate, sort of countrywide aggregates. But basically that suggests that there's a lot of people who are left in the population who can still get infected. And it seems like there's a good chance that they won't be infected this summer. And so that means that there's a good chance they could be infected this fall. So, yeah. so that's, that's a long way of saying that, you know, we, we don't know for sure. There, there are still a lot of things that, of course, as we've, we've said in, on this podcast, we're blue in the face that distinguish this <laughs> virus from the flu, right? Uh -huh. um, and so there, it, it won't necessarily follow that same pattern. But if, if you had to ask me and, and what I like, just as, as a person who's been thinking about pandemics for a while, what do I think is going to happen? Um, I do think that we're probably going to see another substantial rise of infections come this fall. Okay. So a couple follow-ups to this. The first one is when, like, so, cause, cause I've seen, so I work not with, but on the University of Colorado campus. So they just released their announcement that they're going to bring them back in the fall or like late August, like normal, kind of like the Notre Dame a model that we talked about, I think, last week or two weeks ago, where they're going to basically rush them through. Uh, and then Thanksgiving break, they go home and they do not return. Mm -hmm. and, they just, and they basically finish off online. Now, my mind, that's great. Good. So that's November. But in your model or in your thoughts, is that too little too late? Or is that about right at the time? Like, when do you think, in light of what you history, when do spikes usually happen in the fall? Is it early fall, like October, when things get cool? Is it late, like November or December? Where, if you could pinpoint, maybe not pinpoint, get a general estimate of when you might see it or begin to see it, what what would be that time frame? Yeah, so it's you know again, there's there's going to be a lot of variation <laughs> yeah, to sure. this as well, but but so maybe I'll talk about this one from personal experience actually. So I I was in my first year of college at at CU when during during the swine flu outbreak, um, and I remember living in the dorms. What's that? I go go bus. Yeah, go, go ahead. bus. That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so I, I mean, I remember I was, you know, back at Andrews Hall first, you know, first floor East Wing that there were, you know, these, these signs up all over talking about 
hand hygiene and and preventing the spread of the flu and stuff. So it was, it was very much on our minds. And of course, as a, as a little infectious disease nerd as I was at the time, I was trying to pay close attention to what was going on. <laughs> totally. and, and, you know, right? And and there was there was definitely a wave uh, a wave of infections happening as that semester was getting underway. So. So I think that there's probably a good chance that this this same transmission will probably pick up in the September October range, you know. And and it, we were talking about you know how this really affects people going back to school. There are a lot of wedding plans. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, Britt. I know that you listened to this and we talked earlier this spring about your wedding <laughs> that was canceled from this spring and postponed till later. And uh, uh. and and just thinking about doing it this fall. And uh, at the time, we thought that it might be a reasonable thing to do, and it may well still be. But sure, <laughs> is, she's she's going to be listening to this and probably give me a call immediately afterward. And you're <laughs> like, like, what? What, what are you telling me? So yeah, but I think that that's, uh, the thing is, we're just going to have to stay vigilant, you know, over the rest of the year. And, and everybody's making these plans a couple months into the future. And I think that that we have to, to try to give people a chance, a sense of what to expect. But I think we also have to have a lot of understanding that these plans are going to change as we learn yeah. more, as we start, start to understand what's happening with the epidemic. And as cases start to rise again, if they start to rise again. Yeah then we'll just have to sort of uh, shift course. And I think that that's, we'll just sort of have to be a little bit tolerant of that as, you know, as the year goes on. Sure. So I'm going to throw you a curveball in this question. All so, right. so this is, okay. So uh, a couple articles I saw about, I think a lot of people, we talked about this last week. I don't think we necessarily landed the plane on this. And I know it's hard to give concrete uh, assistance in this, but a lot of people are wondering what on earth do I do? Um, nobody has an idea exactly. People even 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 said, I think I don't know where this article was. Mentioned even scientists says, "Tell me, tell me what to do, please." Even experts struggle uh, with coronavirus unknowns. From the Washington Post, a great article about this. Uh, what what should we be doing right now? And I'm I'm proposing this in the context of what you just said. You just said, "Look, mm-hmm. you know, we've been through a lockdown, a reopening. Maybe only ten percent of the population has had it. Right? That's the best estimates. Right? Right?" Now I'm gonna propose the worst case like scenario, and that is I've heard there's like COVID parties. Have you heard about this? <laughs> yeah. So, so they're actually intentionally getting infected, trying to infect themselves, right, to become right. quote immune. So I'm not necessarily that I'm not advocating COVID parties, Stephen. Mm, what I'm yeah. saying is like, should we be doing something as we begin to open up? To prepare for the fall, what should we be doing? When we go out, should we be wearing masks all the time, only in population? What's the best practice that we can both protect ourselves and, I would assume, at least allow some sense of exposure or maybe not so that we can build herd immunity? Because after all, I guess we're kind of just delaying the inevitable until we get the vaccine, which is a hard thing to do. Do you have any recommendations on this summer? Like uh, as we look towards September and October, a potential another wave, as you said, that we could help minimize the wave and take care of those people who were actually most could be most compromised by this by this virus. Yeah. So I mean, I think I'll start off by saying that you know anybody who is at high risk of of, of you know severe outcomes from the illness um, at this point, you probably know who you are. Yeah. You know. It, the the fact is that like the risk of transmission probably does decline some over the summer, but you know you really should be maintaining a lot of the precautions that you've been doing up until this point so far. So that's you know sort of getting that group and you know sort of taking care of them first um, is the important thing. But you know you're you're right. I think that from the start the idea has been really to you know to to try to prevent you know overwhelming our healthcare system and yeah. and certainly to keep ourselves healthy as well you know this is a very severe virus and but but many of us will 
who who do end up coming down with it will will probably you know recover just fine. Mm-hmm. And so I, I certainly wouldn't advocate for COVID parties. You know, I, I don't <laughs> sure. I don't I don't think that. So you said you haven't you haven't been to one, right? I have not okay. been to one. No, but um, yeah, <laughs> based on the thumping bass from our neighbors, I think that they might have had a few next door. So you know, it's <laughs> I, I think that it's yeah it's. <sighs> I, I guess I guess what you're seeing me play out right now is exactly what that article said. Is that like even yeah. even those of us who are experts are sort of having trouble trying to figure out like how to translate this into our into our day to day lives. Like what is what does this mean for the summer? And you know I think that what it's concretely probably going to look like for me is that I will probably see more people than I would have this winter. I will probably try to maintain physical distance. Um, I'll still be wearing a mask when I go out and about in public. Um, that's actually still uh, still required here in Brookline where I'm living. So that's you know that's kind of a no brainer. Just yeah. do it. Yeah. And but yeah, I think that the the thing is like it's I don't know. It, it's always it's always this balance of like trying to maintain you know to to live our lives, but to recognize that there's always risk involved in certain things that we do. Of course, here the biggest risk the, the biggest risk that I'm trying to be cognizant of is to is spread to other people. So yeah. I'm going to make sure that I'm still very much limiting the sorts of activities that would make me a vector of illness to others, yeah. like traveling, all unnecessary travel. Nope, yeah. not doing yeah. it. You know, sure. because yeah. like that's just you know that I I just don't want to risk infecting other people yeah. that way. And so that's that's what I'm trying to be most cognizant of. But but yeah, I think I think that as as these months go on and as we sort of get more familiar with just this virus being around, I think that you know I'll spend a little bit more time outside. Yes. So. Not, not to be cheesy, right? But like yeah. the new normal, right? That's the, that's the phrase, right? We're seeing all over. It's quite hashtag the new normal mm-hmm. and what that kind of looks like. And same thing for me. It's like, I think the biggest thing I'm trying to do is how do I live a new normal? Uh, and, and so what are the things that we can do to go out? You know, my, my family are just talking like this weekend, we need to get out. I mean, Steven, we haven't been out. Like I'm I should be tanner than I am now. And I have yep. a backyard, so we're out to go out there. But even that's limiting. I was talking to you, Stephen, off the with the recording that here where, where I live, people are really kind of becoming freer and freer and freer, right? And so it used to be there's this one moment. So we back up to a green belt and we have this uh, sidewalk next to us. So it kind of exposes us to a lot of pa- you know passerbys, right? Uh, so for a few weeks when everything was all locked down, we could let the boys run and go in the backyard and not have to worry about people coming to the fence and touching and throwing things. But now it's becoming more and more kind of like, oh, whatever. And so now now I'm having to put more mental alarm again, right. even in my own backyard. So we're like, now we want to get out of our own backyard. Like we want to get everywhere. And my wife was like, where can we go in Colorado? Which guys, it's beautiful in Colorado. It's beautiful this time of year. Where can we go in Colorado that we can go out and have fun and go on a hike with nobody around? I'm like, sweetie, I think the only <laughs> place that we can go that's to be nobody around is the ugliest parts of Colorado, right. which I, we don't want to be. It's just, it's just packed everywhere. But I think the best thing is, for us, we're just trying to try to live the best way we can by going, like you said, just wear a mask in public. Uh, when you're out, do your best to keep that six feet apart, and that's it, right? And mm-hmm. and and use hygiene. You have your sanitizer on hand. Yep. Wash your hands. Mask. Do your best to get six feet. There are things that are outside of your control, and then just rely on the hope of the fact that, as we've talked talked about before, that you know, generally speaking, talking that kind of stuff doesn't really necessarily transmit it that quickly, as opposed to a direct cough or a sneeze right in your face. Right, <laughs> so uh, that would suck if they had it. But uh, these things give hope that we can establish routines, go out, shop, that kind of stuff by just being protected. 
Yeah. Okay, that's the best we can do. I want more. I want like an exact plan from you, Stephen, step by step, how to walk. <laughs> but yeah, totally. I know, I know, nobody can give that right now. It, it, we're yeah. all we're all in the same place. It's not like you guys yeah. had the that that the, you know the globe that could see into the future and know exactly how this pans out. Speaking of panning out, another thing I wanted to chat with you about is this this a couple of articles posted this the CDC and I don't know it's a criticism of it. It seems that they're conflating the serological data and then the testing data into one number. And can you maybe explain like what maybe why they're doing this and what problems made this propose for us as we begin to look to see how we're doing in the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, so I think the biggest concern. It, it doesn't really matter so much what you count as long as you're keeping it consistent over time. Okay. And so I think that that's, that's my, my biggest concern with this is that, that, you know, you're trying to compare something early in the epidemic, which is only looking at confirmed positive tests. And then we sort of go into this phase where there's, well, maybe it's confirmed tests and presumed positive tests. And now we're sort of including serology. So I, I haven't dug into the data much yet, but my, my hope is that they will at least sort of separate it out into the categories. And as long as they're doing that so that you can sort of compare apples to apples across, across, it's no problem, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, there's the idea is that, you know, it's, it's better to report more as we're trying to triangulate exactly what's going on. These are just different, different ways of sort of peering under the curtain and, and, and sort of seeing what's happening with the pandemic. It's through the tests, through, through the vigilance of our doctors and through antibodies in our blood. Like those, those are the three main ways that we can sort of keep track of what's happening. Okay. And so I, I'm, I'm very uh, sympathetic to their desire for sure to, to include this, this other, you know, rich source of information that, we haven't really, you know, prior to this, we didn't really have the technology sorted out to to, to use it well, and and now we do. So they're kind of. It seems like they're trying to do the best they can with the technology they've got to give the most up to date information that they can. Okay. And so, so that's that's what I see from it. So you're not too concerned about it. I'm I'm not too concerned about it. You know, okay. it's yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you know, it, uh, that's not to say that like there's you know, it, I think it's it's worth sort of you know questioning what what our institutions do and and that like, you know it. it yeah, I think that it's worth sort of scrutinizing it for sure, but it really seems to me like they're doing it in, in good faith and that it will not diminish the value of the information they're providing at all, as far as I can tell. Okay, great. Last thing in the news before we do a couple deep dives, and then I want to have you guys listen to Mark, who was in play that at the beginning, but we already kind of got into the, the show. Again, Mark's uh, away at the hospital, but he was kind enough to kind of give us a few reflections as he was heading to the hospital this morning. One more thing about in the news, I saw this is not the first time we talked about this, Stephen, but it's resurfaced again, this idea of it's possible to catch coronavirus twice. Saw it in the news, wanted to hear your thoughts. They're kind of framing it in this perspective of, hey, you know, up to 40 to 50%, I guess, I don't know if I'm correct in the number, are asymptomatic or have very few symptoms, which might infuriate, infuriate, infuriate no, it might infer that there is maybe less antibodies in the body so that maybe you could get infected twice. Is this a real possibility? Right. Is this circulating among you guys about this kind of talk? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think there there's sort of two two different areas that this could come from. And, and one of them is reactivation of the virus. So saying that you've been infected at some point in the past and you've sort of had this latent infection for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden you develop symptoms. Or you may develop like low-level symptoms and then another sort of bout of symptoms, but they might all be related to the same infection. So that's that's something that can happen with viral infections. And so in that case, it's not so much being infected twice as just having sort of like a relapse of the illness. That said, uh, absolutely. I mean, we've we've been thinking about the immunity to this virus from the start. And it really uh, been, 
as upfront as we've been able to be about the fact that we we don't know whether this virus actually does confer much immunity. I mean, my again, my 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 guess is that it probably does for at least some period of time. Um, but I would also guess that the, the amount of immunity that you get is probably related to some degree to the severity of symptoms that you have. Because oftentimes, you know, what what you feel when you get a cold is often is often the immune response. You're not even really feeling the virus itself. You're feeling your body's response to it. Like that's that's what a fever is. Yeah. And so yeah, and so I think that in a lot of the models that we've developed, we we have we we've assumed that immunity is only partial or only a few people get it and these sorts of things. The hope is that we'll be wrong, that there will be a lot more immunity than there is. But my guess is that, you know, especially talking about the huge numbers of people who have been infected, you know, biology is weird, you know, and, <laughs> and like sometimes, sometimes you just don't mount a very good immune response to something. Yeah. So it's there, there are no guarantees in biology. And so, so it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if repeat infections were possible and were happening. Um, yeah. My hope and my guess is that there are somewhat rare, but I, I sure wouldn't rule it out. And this is a great another episode of like, it's okay, it's complicated, because we <laughs> just talked about how we might see another wave that Stephen's thinking about that could be another wave. We talked about because we have a 10% of herd immunity or whatever it is of infected, that's not large enough. So you may be inclined to think, let's go out, let's just get infected and reduce that wave in the fall. But that does not include the unknowns that we don't know that it is possible that you could do that and then we have two waves on our hand because right. you get infected twice because 40 to 50% have very little signs of being sure. infected, right? right? So again, uh, there's just not one simple road that is this beautiful gold, golden brick road that leads us to a solution. Yeah. And I, I wish there was, and I'm sure Stephen wishes there was too. It'd make his job a lot easier. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so now I want to get into a couple of questions I want to propose to Stephen. I love these articles. It kind of picks more of a philosophical part of, of, of Stephen. The first one I saw is, why scientists change their mind and disagree. I like this article because we're seeing this. We're seeing scientists say one thing back in February or, or even January, and they're beginning to say something different. Now, is this, how do you deal with this, Stephen? Like, is this a normal thing within the scientific community? And how do you deal with this, with this idea? And then my biggest thing I want to propose, I want to kind of pick your brain for is, before you came to Harvard and before this happened, you were a Cambridge little boy, young lad, right? <laughs> and you were, right. you were doing your, your PhD there. You're doing great work. And I'm assuming now things are a lot different for you. Now, clearly there are. But I'm also guessing there are pressures that you have now that you did not have pressures. And some of these pressures are just the unique pressures of being an epidemiologist during a pandemic. Some of these pressures are being epidemiologists in the midst of a pandemic with media being thrown in your face nonstop of calling you out that you're an idiot. You're, 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 you know, you maybe you, you have a double standard, you change your mind. So what's going on with you, Steve, in the midst of dealing with this idea of scientists change your mind? How does that work in the process? And how is this pandemic or is it pressuring you in the community of your own scientists maybe not to be so free to change your mind and feel this kind of intuitive nature of like, no, I got to stand my ground because I don't want to be ex exposed to some kind of fraud when all along this might be part of the scientific process. So I want to pick your brain on this. Yeah, totally. I mean, <laughs> a bit tongue in cheek, but I, I mean, I would, I would, I would call that process of scientists changing our minds learning, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's, that's what we're trying to do. That's right? amazing. Like that's, I've never heard that. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, frankly, like, in a, I've always been sort of mystified by this. You know, it, you know we're, we're entering another election. It's, it seems like it's always an election year, right? But, um, <laughs> yeah, totally but it, it's like, for, for, for a very long time, I've always been mystified by this notion. One, one of the worst things that you can say about a politician is that they flip flopped, right? Yeah, exactly. Like they changed their mind about something. And I've always been like, what's, well, I I want somebody who will change their mind yeah. when new yeah. information comes in uh-huh. to you know like that that's great like I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah sure I'm all for that you know yeah and so so and 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 you're right that's like that's part of the scientific process and I think that's that's part of the human process as well you know as as information comes in our our beliefs and our understandings change um, and that's of course happened over the course of this pandemic right like we a, a couple of months ago. We we didn't even know what this thing was, right? We knew that there was something spreading that was causing atypical pneumonia in China, and we had no idea if it was a virus, what type of virus it was. You know, so like it was just a couple months ago, right? Like days, day, like that, that's that's not long, uh-huh. and and we've been, you know, our our knowledge about this thing has been expanding hugely, and of course, as that happens, we're going to change our minds and 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 think differently about about what's happening but you bring up an interesting point about about sort of that that interface between media and sort of culture more more widely and 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 just sort of how that affects the process of being a scientist i mean you're absolutely right there is there is a ton of pressure that's associated with just being an epidemiologist in the middle of a pandemic i mean there's this sense that like you know every every minute that you're spending is a minute that you could be spending thinking more that you know, about what's happening so that you can hopefully, you know, keep people safe. Like that's, it's like, I I do feel like every, every decision that I've made over the past couple of months has come down to sort of that calculus, which is, which is pretty exhausting. But, but, but then you sort of add on top of the fact that like we're, we are being to some extent held to account a very weird kind of account, but we're being held to account for our statements. You know, I have to, the, the things that I say are things that will follow me. And in the interviews that I've done in the past couple of weeks, one of the most common questions I've gotten is, do you still believe what you said, you know, however many weeks ago, when they asked me a similar question, however many weeks ago. And, and so there, fortunately, I haven't felt a ton of pressure to, to sort of keep the story consistent. Although I'm sort of also speaking from the fact that from my perspective, the story really hasn't changed that much. But on the whole, I mean, it's, I think that it's, you know, it's, it's just very, there's, there's the learning and there's, there's the doing of science. And then there's also the communicating of science and, and they're all, they're all really closely related. Yeah, you, uh, there there is a certain care that needs to be taken when communicating that you've changed your mind. I think because uh, rightly so, you need to be able to justify why that's yeah. the case um, and why the evidence that you have now was sufficient to overturn what you thought then and why what you thought then, uh, like basically why you, why you thought what you did. Then. It's it's like <laughs> yeah. this very difficult process, and there's just like a ton of introspection about it. So. So yeah, I I think that's a very rambling sort of way to say that like yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure sort of inherent in it there that that is sort of heightened when there's sort of this increased level of scrutiny and also this this propensity to sort of take your words and and fixate on certain ones and yeah. you know you have to be very careful about like what you throw out there because yeah. things can be pulled out of context and that sort of thing. Yeah. So so I found myself just like really really just sort of watching what I say, running it by people who I trust before I write an article or go on an interview or something like that. Uh, just 
just to make sure that I'm I'm actually communicating what I want to. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, just, yeah it's hard. It's hard, yeah. right? Even yeah. in communication, like there's so many times I'm talking with Allie and I, I'm like, no, I didn't say that. She tells me, I, like, Yo, like I, you told me this was going to happen, right? And I was like, no, no, I, did, I never said that. And then she repeats yeah. back to me the words that I said. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I meant something entirely different, but the yeah. same words, you know, can, yeah. and I think that's just a very human thing. And, and it, you know, the all of our institutions, media, science are just sort of these, these things that sort of are pressure cookers for what it is to be human in a way. And they sort of highlight these different aspects of humanity, I think. And, and I think that that interface between science and, and, and the media is very similar to just this, this sort of communication, this, this standard communication, and it brings it up to a fever pitch, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a very strange sort of place to be, but yeah. And (laughs) pressures and details that I would have never expected. So. Yeah, I, you know, when you said at the very beginning of this, when you were talking about it, how when somebody's starting to ask you, do you still believe this? I feel like may, maybe they're asking that in a very purely kind of natural, like in, like uh, right. inquiry or discovery, <laughs> or they're waiting to say, aha, I got you, right? right? You right. know, like, got what? Like, this is where I, and I think this is the problem where, you know, so many people will be like, you changed your mind. So are you a conspiracy theorist? Or, you know, it's like, no, no, I, what you said, I, I learned, like I adapted, like this is the nature of maybe, I don't know if it's a difference between education and learning. Like education is this rote verbatim, give back and never changes. Mm-hmm. And learning is this adaptability and reanalysis and new discovery. And so I'm just, I was just curious about how you felt about that and uh, the pressures you might be feeling uh, to, 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 to take a position because of people trying to force you to, to stay with one. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that, although you still feel the pressure, you can still maintain your, your scientific merit badge, uh, and, yeah. uh, <laughs> which is great. Which leads to the other, the other question here, this article, it is related. 500 doctors tell, tell Trump uh, to end the coronavirus shutdown. I was talking to, to Steve, and now I didn't see when this was published, but I do think it was recent. I yeah. thought it was kind of funny. I'm like, well, I think we kind of did in the shutdown. But, but nonetheless, I get the sentiment that we're, we're not totally reopened, so I, we'll go with that. Uh, and they talk about the say it will cause more deaths by having the shutdown. So I want to pick your brain on this, not so much with the 500 doctors and the Trump and the coronavirus shutdown, but particularly when you do epidemiology, you are doing this in the context of a broader scope, I'm guessing, particularly right now, because you're at Harvard. So it's probably not that difficult to knock on somebody else's door who's in a different department to begin to talk about other dimensions to, or other impacts of this virus and other things. So how do you, as an epidemiologist, look at this, not just through epidemiology, which that is your profession, I get it, but as a, as a wider scope, what are you doing? How are you talking? How are you gathering more information to, to look at this at a higher perspective, being fully aware that, okay, this is what I'm advocating, right? Maybe it was a shutdown for phase one. Here's how I believe it works. How do you then look at the bigger picture? Who are you talking to? How does that incorporate into your science? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that we we think about an awful lot. So one of the most memorable lab meetings that I've that I've been to was was when I was back in Cambridge. I was working um, in this disease dynamics unit, which is just sort of this consortium of people at the University of Cambridge who do infectious disease mathematical modeling. And someone was giving this this wonderful presentation. It was, it was really interesting and engaging about the crossover of viruses from bats into humans. They were, they were talking about a particular virus and, and basically trying to trying to calculate the probabilities that this sort of thing could happen and, and really putting in you know a ton of effort to collecting data. They were doing a lot of field work and mathematical modeling and all of these sorts of things. And the, the conversation took a took an interesting turn when one of the really head professors in the room sort of like sat back at his chair and sort of asked uh, to everyone and to no one at once, like, you know, sh- should we just be addressing poverty? 
Like, like what are, what are, what are we actually doing here? You know, thinking about like, what are these like specific probabilities of the crossover of this rare virus into humans? And like, ostensibly we're, we're, we're really doing this to uphold human health, but like, is, is the answer to this actually just, you know, infrastructural development? And like, should we be throwing our weight behind that? If, if we're, if we're serious about public health, is that what we should, what we should be doing instead of infectious disease modeling? And, and that, and that's really stuck with me. I mean, that's that, that, that moment is, is now actually sort of the, the criteria by which I try to judge the questions that I have and, and the things that I try to do is, is this, you know, is, is this at least as important as what I could be doing by just sort of, you know, the acts of acts of service and 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 working to sort of improve our society from a much more sort of holistic perspective and so those, those sorts of conversations are happening all the time and, and and you're right there's there's this huge value of being able to just sort of knock on somebody's door who's who's an expert in the intersection between poverty and public health and 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 so it's it's very much on our minds and and in this pandemic in particular you know there there are a lot of you know a lot of collateral effects that come with with physical distancing and with lockdowns and these sorts of things and that's and that's again something that that we've we've been we've been thinking an awful lot about and and of course of course only thinking about from from the perspectives that we have but trying to expand those all the time trying to understand you know what what is the economic consequence and who uh, who's most likely to bear the brunt of this? You know, the it's. I, I was speaking with a colleague the other day about how one of the difficulties, like one of the real tragedies of this pandemic, is that it's it, it is sort of the the poorest of our society who both are the essential workers, and so they are at the highest risk of infection, and also are the ones most at risk of losing their jobs and are you know are are just sort of suffering the most from this lockdown. There's sort of this double double impact on on the most vulnerable members of our society and and that, unfortunately that's that's often just like the way that the course that that things happen like it's it's always the most vulnerable who 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 are in fact the most vulnerable and suffer the most and so yeah, I mean, I think that I guess maybe that's that's what I would want to communicate from from the public health side as much as I possibly can is that while we have been advocating for these lockdowns for for whatever sorts of interventions that we've been suggesting like it's it's been with an incredibly heavy heart and it's been with this sense that like we we don't fully know what the impact of this uh, uh, you know the collateral impact of these things will be but we know that there's a crisis heading our way if we don't and so it's this real, it's this real dilemma. It's like a, an incredible dilemma. And yeah, and it's, it keeps me up at night, you know, it, it keeps me up at night. And so, yeah, and it's, it's something we're continuing to try to deal with. And you know, again, as, as we learn more about what are the impacts, who's being impacted, what are the ways to mitigate that impact? How can we reduce infection while still making sure people go back to work? You know, that's, that's the hard work we're doing. And, that, that it, and when I say we, I mean, we as a society are doing right now. But, you know, as a, everyone who I've spoken with who's, who's working on response to this epidemic have really been thinking along those lines. And, and it's important, you know, that's, yeah. this is, this touches every part of our lives. Yeah, that's great. I think just looking back and seeing how I, I, I we said this before that when this is all said and done, more ink is going to be spilt on this than I think <laughs> anything in our lifetime, Stephen, because I think there's so many facets we're going to look back and we're going to see successes. We're going to see huge mistakes that we made. Um, that's yeah. the nature of like venturing into an unknown territory that has a threat and you do your best and you try to pivot, you try to persevere and we make, we make small wins and small losses as we move forward. And, you know, I, you know, I just want to encourage people that we're trying to reopen here in the U S and that's a wonderful thing. And there could be some possible consequences to that. And I know people like to blame the, 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 um, 
the, the some of the most vulnerable things, right? The suicides that have gone up six hundred percent, right? The, yeah. the the enormous amount of poverty that's sorry that, that that's that's just at the beginning, right? We're not even seeing the full ramification of the poverty and the deaths of the poverty, and I'm not in the, in the domestic abuse, right? The alcoholism, the substance abuse, all this stuff that is having the collateral damage, and it's so easy, it's so easy to say it's because of the lockdown, Stephen. Right, it's a lockdown. And I'm not saying the lockdown did not contribute anything to that, but I'm right. also saying the same thing. Like we're always saying, it's more complicated. We just saw, and I know this is a stupid piece of data. It's not stupid, but it's small. That whole open table thing that we talked about at the very beginning, how we saw before there was even a lockdown, a 60% decrease in restaurant attendance. Now, I, I know there's no relationship between restaurant attendance and suicide and domestic violence. I'm not trying to compare apples to apples with that, but I am trying to show that there was a fear that was already in place by a real, a real enemy, right? This mm-hmm. virus that was unknown. So the pandemic is the largest threat to us and we're doing the best that we can and we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make wins and we go out and we try to have a normal life, the new normal. I know it's, people hate that phrase already. It's been out for like four days, but it is, <laughs> it is the reality of the situation. So before I end with maybe allowing Mark to reflect on, on what's going on in the hospital, I just want to encourage everyone to do what I've been trying to do and I still struggle with is just do not succumb to the temptation to, de- to determination and always keep that spirit of discovery, that openness of realizing how can I make this opportunity something great? Yes, for yourself, but for your family, for your spouse, for your children, for your peers, for your coworkers, um, helping those who are the most vulnerable, right? Because in, in the UN, in the end, it's, it's going back to that first quote we started with, with C.S. Lewis and that rats in the cellar, that I'm not, you know, the suicide, the domestic violence, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to determine how that happened, but I do often know that these kind of things shed light on something that already existed, uh, a vulnerability that already existed that was heightened and made so much more worse. And how can we be there for those people who are the most vulnerable so that we can be there to protect them so that when these things happen again, that threat doesn't increase their vulnerability but actually creates a safety net to keep them from being too vulnerable. That is what we need to do. It's complicated. It's okay. It's complicated. But we need to have a wider scope. I'm so thankful for Stephen and being at Harvard and to be able to talk to all the different departments who care deeply about finding a solution that everyone wins and not just have one win and one and everyone else loses. So let's listen to Mark about what he's up to in the hospital. He's got some good food for thought, like usual, the philosophical man pondering literature and works. Uh, Let's hear from him right now. All right, here we go. Hey guys, happy Wednesday. I miss chatting with you in person today. Uh, Headed into the hospital this morning and uh, I've been working this week on a COVID team and then we're transitioning to a general medicine service sort of uh, from here on out through the rest of the week. So, um, Matt had asked me to talk a little bit about some of the things that I'm seeing and and thinking about. So, um, you know, I may have mentioned this before on one of our previous podcasts, but it's been um, in the midst of all of the craziness and sort of this unprecedented um, uh, need for care. um, It's been intellectually interesting to start to develop an illness script for the coronavirus and to start to get a better clinical understanding of what's going on. And so one of the things I've been talking about with my 
fellow docs here and, and thinking about a lot is just how, how much it's changed, how much our understanding of this illness has changed just in a matter of weeks, kind of really rapidly. Um, the kind of questions that we were asking, you know, in early March as we were trying to figure out, uh, you know, what can we expect? What days of illness are going to be the worst? Um, when can we intervene and how? Um, and that, and those questions are far from settled, but I do feel like we have much higher resolution now. Um, and, you know, one of my colleagues, um, I think has said it best when he said, you know, there's a certain sense of this is what maybe some of the older internists felt, you know, at the turn of the century that were identifying and, and characterizing disease processes for the first time, um, noticing patterns and then trying to put those patterns into, into actionable recommendations for themselves and for other people. Um, so there has been a process of that and there's been sort of a, this intellectual process of discovery, you know, superimposed on all of the difficulty and kind of the real human experience and story, um, that's going on. So it's been, it's just been a very interesting time to be an internist. I also was struck kind of in, a, in another conversation with a physician about how, how we tend to latch on to our patient encounters as evidence, right? And so we, you know, we see something and we, we latch onto it. And it's only in conversation that we turn that anecdotal evidence, uh, which can, lead to a certain type of bias, but is also there's a certain type of validity there. But then we talk and we say, well, what have you seen? What have you observed? What are you doing? What are your best practices? Um, so there's been an opportunity to have a lot of really dynamic conversation around patient care in these areas that has, I think, also advanced our, our understanding of this disease. So it's been, it's been interesting. That's been a theme for me sort of throughout the pandemic about the ways that, that knowledge encountered in conversation and kind of grappled with in conversation becomes just more robust and more applicable. And, and you know, as we continue to go back and, and have a more and more nuanced understanding of what's going on. So what have I been reading this week? I've read a couple things. The New England Journal of Medicine published the remdesivir data um, that we had talked about a few weeks ago. Um, we had some preliminary data that was released by Dr. Fauci and then that full study, you know, or, or kind of the study as, as much as was done before they stopped it a little bit early has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so it's interesting, you know, again, higher resolution information, um, thinking about how that's applicable in the clinical setting. There's also been um, conversations about these hydroxychloroquine observational studies. And I think the big take home for me with all of this continues to be that it's not enough to just take to look for the take home or, you know, the abstract of the article or the, you know, the findings. We really have to understand the methods and the methodology that was employed to understand what patient populations these therapies can be helpful for and also to really understand how robust the evidence is um, because different studies and different methodologies produce different types of actionable information. Um, so there's been a lot of just interesting conversation in the hospital as this evidence continues to get spun out. You know, we're working, we have a lot of active clinical trials at the university hospital here. So we're, it's, it's good to participate sort of in that building of the fund of knowledge as well. Also in the New England Journal, um, I read Mark Ernest's On Becoming a Plague Doctor, which I found fascinating. It was an opinion article published, I think just earlier this month. And, uh, he's a physician here as well. And he had a great reflection about sort of the, you know, the old medieval plague doctor costume and how that served physicians then and sort of the strange similarities that we're feeling now with our masks and gowns and gloves and a really interesting meditation on the tension between presence 
and safety uh, or presence and contagion and, and, you know, taking one's personal risk, but also one's desire to engage patients in a meaningful way. So I thought that was neat. And it really added sort of to my own personal reflections about this time. It's That's been something that I've felt and haven't quite been able to put into words, but just sort of the strangeness of having a mask on all the time in the hospital and what that means both symbolically and, and also just on a concrete level, you know, how that helps prevent us from infecting other people and, and getting infected ourselves. So it's a good meditation. The other thing I've read this week that I loved from my my buddy, uh, Eitan, again, pointed me to this, uh, Marilyn Robinson, who's an author. She's, she's an essayist, a uh, uh, fiction writer. Uh, she won the Pulitzer Prize for her novel, Gilead. Um, she's really a national treasure as far as I'm concerned. She's just just incredible prose, and her mind is so, so amazing. And so she wrote an extended essay in the New York Review called What what kind of country do we want? And she does, she has this remarkable way of kind of cutting through a lot of the, the ways that our thought gets encrusted and both kind of, you know, default liberalism and default conservatism and cutting down to this level of like, where did they begin? And like, in what kind of human needs and desires did those thoughts begin? And how do we imagine starting to get back to those things and just a very subtle and and imaginative kind of addressing of the ways that this upheaval might lead to creativity. Beautiful, beautifully written. So yeah, it's called What Kind of Country Do We Want? Here in the hospital, we've seen a sustained decline in the COVID cases, very slow, but seems to be steady. Um, Nobody knows for sure how long it's going to last or what things are going to look like as we continue to reopen. And there's definitely cause for ongoing vigilance, like we talked about, I think, you know, vigilance without being afraid, you know, but being cautious and prudent and and mindful. Patients are definitely returning to the hospital and and seem to be returning to more kind of normal outpatient care as well. You know, personally, I've been reflecting on the ways that these cases of the coronavirus or the COVID disease often affect whole families. Um, Either families are infected or there's just such deep kind of family uh, impact with this. And so that's been something that's been on my mind a lot and just trying to engage that in the the little ways that we're able to. And I, I'm genuinely, I'm, I think I'm really feeling grateful to be in a place where we're able to witness these instances of care and kind of have, you know, they're, they're fleeting contacts, but, but they're meaningful. And it's, it's definitely brought me back to a place of kind of thinking about the core of medicine and what, what medicine's about uh, and the privilege that this role provides to kind of be in the, in the middle of stuff. So, yeah, so looking forward to hearing from you guys. And uh, thanks again for the, the good questions and thoughts. And uh, I'll catch up with you next week. All right, take care. Bye. All right. So that was Mark. No, a couple of things before we get going. Number one, I will hound Mark for the show notes for all that awesome stuff that he provided for us. Uh, the one thing it just hit me the second time listening to this first time I'm like editing his work and getting it all edited. So I don't really listen to it, but I loved when you talk about the reflection of the, the wrestling with presence and safety. That's like, I think that's a big thing. I, I feel that huge. I mean, just even on our green belt, I was talking about how now people are coming and I'm trying to like balance the equation of, I know that person, I want to be present to them, but the safety. So this is on a small level versus having mask on and the symbolic gesture of like uh, safety over presence and just being there for them but just wrestling. I have this like internal wrestle of trying to want to be present to my friends and to my neighbors, but at the same time, constantly scom- like combing my surroundings for safety. So my boys don't run and latch them off to someone uh, and possibly get infected. And we can't see Nana for three weeks or so. So uh, I love what he said. It's something I'll probably take to heart for a while and just reflect upon uh, as it's been a big struggle for me to balance those two things and find some kind of uh, like synthesis between the two. Okay. I think it's time to end this episode. Thank you so much for listening. 
Again, if you have the resources available to donate, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, as little as $5 a month would greatly help us to keep this keep this going. Uh, as well as uh, you can, for, for a one-time donation through Venmo or PayPal, you can give a small donation. That's all in the show notes as well. Finally, that if you want to check out livingthereal.com, that's my website. Sign up. There's more information coming out soon, but I have the podcast live right now on all major directories. So go to livingthereal.com or just search for Living The Real and subscribe to that as well. Okay. If you want to check up, check in with Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N on Twitter, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R. For me on Twitter, if you want to reach out as an email, just to say hello to us, probably the best way is Matt, M-A-T-T at livingthereal.com. All right. Have a wonderful and great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. Take care. Bye-bye.